Section two of the Adventures of Gerard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How Brigadier Gerard lost his ear. Continued. The room into which I had broken was brilliantly lighted, with its gold cornices, its massive pillars, and its painted walls and ceilings. It was evidently the grand hall of some famous Venetian palace. There are many hundreds such in this strange city, any one of which has rooms which would grace the Louvre or Versailles. In the centre of this great hall there was a raised dais, and upon it, in a half-circle, there sat twelve men all clad in black gowns, like those of a Franciscan monk, and each with a mask over the upper part of his face. A group of armed men, rough-looking rascals, were standing round the door, and amid them, facing the dais, was a young fellow in the uniform of the light infantry. As he turned his head I recognised him. It was Captain Array of the Seventh, a young Basque with whom I had drunk many a glass during the winter. He was deadly white, poor wretch, but he held himself manfully amid the assassins who surrounded him. Never shall I forget the sudden flash of hope which shone in his dark eyes when he saw a comrade burst into the room or the look of despair which followed, as he understood that I had come not to change his fate, but to share it. You can think how amazed these people were when I hurled myself into their presence. My pursuers had crowded in behind me and choked the doorway, so that all further flight was out of the question. It is at such instants that my nature asserts itself. With dignity I advanced toward the tribunal. My jacket was torn, my hair was dishevelled, my head was bleeding, but there was that in my eyes and in my carriage which made them realise that no common man was before them. Not a hand was raised to arrest me until I halted in front of a formidable old man whose long grey beard and masterful manner told me that both by years and by character he was the man in authority. Sir, said I, you will perhaps tell me why I have been forcibly arrested and brought to this place. I am an honourable soldier, as is this other gentleman here, and I demand that you will instantly set us both at liberty. There was an appalling silence to my appeal. It was not pleasant to have twelve masked faces turned upon you, and to see twelve pairs of vindictive Italian eyes fixed with fierce intentness upon your face. But I stood as a debonair soldier should, and I could not but reflect how much credit I was bringing upon the Hussars of Conflans by the dignity of my bearing. I do not think that any one could have carried himself better under such difficult circumstances. I looked with a fearless face from one assassin to another, and I waited for some reply. It was the greybeard who at last broke the silence. "'Who is this man?' he asked. "'His name is Gerard,' said the little steward at the door." "'Colonel Gerard,' said I, "'I will not deceive you. "'I am Etienne Gerard, the Colonel Gerard, five times mentioned in dispatches, "'and recommended for the sword of honour. "'I am aide-de-camp to General Suchet, "'and I demand my instant release, "'together with that of my comrade-in-arms.' "'The same terrible silence fell upon the assembly, "'and the same twelve pairs of merciless eyes "'were bent upon my face. "'Again it was the greybeard who spoke.' He is out of his order. There are two names upon our list before him. He escaped from our hands and burst into the room. Let him await his turn. 
Take him down to the wooden cell. If he resist us, your excellency, bury your knives in his body. The tribunal will uphold you. Remove him until we have dealt with the others. They advanced upon me, and for an instant I thought of resistance. It would have been a heroic death, but who was there to see it or to chronicle it? I might be only postponing my fate, and yet I had been in so many bad places and come out unhurt that I had learned always to hope and to trust my star. I allowed these rascals to seize me, and I was led from the room, the gondolier walking at my side with a long naked knife in his hand. I could see in his brutal eyes the satisfaction which it would give him if he could find some excuse for plunging it into my body. They are wonderful places, these great Venetian houses, palaces and fortresses and prisons all in one. I was led along a passage and down a bare stone stair until we came to a short corridor from which three doors opened. Through one of these I was thrust and the spring lock closed behind me. The only light came dimly through a small grating which opened on the passage. Peering and feeling, I carefully examined the chamber in which I had been placed. I understood from what I had heard that I should soon have to leave it again in order to appear before this tribunal, but still it is not my nature to throw away any possible chances. The stone floor of the cell was so damp, and the walls for some feet high were so slimy and foul that it was evident that they were beneath the level of the water. A single slanting hole high up near the ceiling was the only aperture for light or air. Through it I saw one bright star shining down upon me, and the sight filled me with comfort and with hope. I have never been a man of religion, though I have always had a respect for those who were, but I remember that night that the star shining down the shaft seemed to be an all-seeing eye which was upon me, and I felt as a young and frightened recruit might feel in battle when he saw the calm gaze of his colonel turned upon him. Three of the sides of my prison were formed of stone, but the fourth was of wood, and I could see that it had only recently been erected. Evidently a partition had been thrown up to divide a single large cell into two smaller ones. There was no hope for me in the old walls, in the tiny window, or in the massive door. It was only in this one direction of the wooden screen that there was any possibility of exploring. My reason told me that if I should pierce it, which did not seem very difficult, it would only be to find myself in another cell as strong as that in which I then was. Yet I had always rather be doing something than doing nothing, so I bent all my attention and all my energies upon the wooden wall. Two planks were badly joined and so loose that I was certain I could easily detach them. I searched about for some tool, and I found one in the leg of a small bed which stood in the corner. I forced the end of this into the chink of the planks, and I was about to twist them outward when the sound of rapid footsteps caused me to pause and to listen. I wish I could forget what I heard. Many a hundred men have I seen die in battle, and I have slain more myself than I care to think of, but all that was fair fight and the duty of a soldier. It was a very different matter to listen to a murder in this den of assassins. They were pushing someone along the passage, someone who resisted, and who clung to my door as he passed. They must have taken him into the third cell, the one which was farthest from me. "'Help! help!' cried a voice, 
and then I heard a blow and a scream. Help, help, cried the voice again, and then, Gerard, Colonel Gerard. It was my poor captain of infantry whom they were slaughtering. Murderers, murderers, I yelled, and I kicked at my door. But again I heard him shout, and then everything was silent. A minute later there was a heavy splash, and I knew that no human eye would ever see Array again. He had gone as a hundred others had gone whose names were missing from the roll-calls of their regiments during that winter in Venice. The steps returned along the passage, and I thought that they were coming for me. Instead of that, they opened the door of the cell next to mine, and they took someone out of it. I heard the steps die away up the stair. At once I renewed my work upon the planks, and within a very few minutes I had loosened them in such a way that I could remove and replace them at pleasure. Passing through the aperture, I found myself in the farther cell, which, as I expected, was the other half of the one in which I had been confined. I was not any nearer to escape than I had been before, for there was no other wooden wall which I could penetrate, and the spring lock of the door had been closed. There were no traces to show who was my companion in misfortune. Closing the two loose planks behind me, I returned to my own cell, and waited there with all the courage which I could command for the summons which would probably be my death knell. It was a long time in coming, but at last I heard the sound of feet once more in the passage, and I nerved myself to listen to some other odious deed, and to hear the cries of the poor victim. Nothing of the kind occurred, however, and the prisoner was placed in the cell without violence. I had no time to peep through my hole of communication, for next moment my own door was flung open, and my rascally gondolier, with the other assassins, came into the cell. "'Come, Frenchman,' said he. He held his blood-stained knife in his great hairy hand, and I read in his fierce eyes that he only looked for some excuse in order to plunge it into my heart. Resistance was useless. I followed without a word. I was led up the stone stair and back into that gorgeous chamber in which I had left the secret tribunal. I was ushered in, but to my surprise it was not on me that their attention was fixed. One of their own number, a tall, dark young man, was standing before them and was pleading with them in low, earnest tones. His voice quivered with anxiety and his hands darted in and out or writhed together in an agony of entreaty. "'You cannot do it! You cannot do it!' he cried. I implore the tribunal to reconsider this decision. Stand aside, brother, said the old man who presided. The case is decided, and another is up for judgment. For heaven's sake, be merciful, cried the young man. We have already been merciful, the other answered. Death would have been a small penalty for such an offence. Be silent and let judgment take its course. I saw the young man throw himself in an agony of grief into his chair. I had no time, however, to speculate as to what it was which was troubling him, for his eleven colleagues had already fixed their stern eyes upon me. The moment of fate had arrived. "'You are Colonel Gerard,' said the terrible old man. "'I am?' "'Aide-de-camp to the robber who calls himself General Suchet,' who in turn represents that arch-robber Bonaparte? It was on my lips to tell him that he was a liar. 
but there is a time to argue and a time to be silent i am an honourable soldier said i i have obeyed my orders and done my duty the blood flushed into the old man's face and his eyes blazed through his mask you are thieves and murderers every man of you he cried what are you doing here you are frenchmen why are you not in france did we invite you to venice by what right are you here where are our pictures where are the horses of st mark who are you that you should pilfer those treasures which our fathers through so many centuries have collected we were a great city when france was a desert your drunken brawling ignorant soldiers have undone the work of saints and heroes what have you to say to it he was indeed a formidable old man for his white beard bristled with fury and he barked out the little sentences like a savage hound for my part i could have told him that his pictures would be safe in paris that his horses were really not worth making a fuss about and that he could see heroes i say nothing of saints without going back to his ancestors or even moving out of his chair all this i could have pointed out but one might as well argue with a mameluke about religion i shrugged my shoulders and said nothing the prisoner has no defence said one of my masked judges has any one any observation to make before judgment is passed the old man glared round him at the others there is one matter your excellency said another it can scarce be referred to without reopening a brother's wounds but i would remind you that there is a very particular reason why an exemplary punishment should be inflicted in the case of this officer i had not forgotten it the old man answered brother if the tribunal has injured you in one direction it will give you ample satisfaction in another the young man who had been pleading when i entered the room staggered to his feet i cannot endure it he cried your excellency must forgive me the tribunal can act without me i am ill i am mad he flung his hands out with a furious gesture and rushed from the room let him go let him go said the president it is indeed more than can be asked of flesh and blood that he should remain under this roof but he is a true venetian and when the first agony is over he will understand that it could not be otherwise i had been forgotten during this episode and though i am not a man who is accustomed to being overlooked i should have been all the happier had they continued to neglect me but now the old president glared at me again like a tiger who comes back to his victim you shall pay for it all and it is but justice that you should he said you an upstart adventurer and foreigner have dared to raise your eyes in love to the granddaughter of a doge of venice who was already betrothed to the heir of the lord dance he who enjoys such privileges must pay a price for them it cannot be higher than they are worth said i you will tell us that when you have made a part payment said he perhaps your spirit may not be so proud by that time matteo you will lead this prisoner to the wooden cell to-night's monday let him have no food or water and let him be led before the tribunal again on wednesday night we shall then decide upon the death which he is to die it was not a pleasant prospect and yet it was a reprieve one is thankful for small mercies when a hairy savage with a blood-stained knife is standing at one's elbow he dragged me from the room and i was thrust down the stairs and back into my cell 
The door was locked and I was left to my reflections. End of section two.